Well, this series has been around the idea of making space, creating space for people. And this is the end of our series. Next week, we begin the season of Advent, which means expectation or arrival as we move towards Christmas. But I want to mention just two things real quick before we kind of begin today. Uh, One, um, next Sunday is Pastor Chase's last Sunday with us. And so following the service, we'll have cake and bunch and uh, you can say goodbyes. And if you have connected with him, you want to give him a card or anything like that, plan on doing that next Sunday following the service. Um, But that means leads to the second part of this today, following the service, uh, either in the gym or upstairs in the youth room. If you are a teenager or a parent of a teenager, uh, we're having a meeting just to talk about kind of what's coming up. And so we'd like you to be a part of that. Um, So that's just a kind of mini announcement. We'll probably mention that again, but just wanted you to have a heads up on that. Have you noticed there are things that when you're a kid, they stick in your head, you remember them and, and... Some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them are indifferent. Um, And so I was thinking about neighbors we had as kids. Um, For a while, when I was a young kid, there was the Dunphy family who lived across the street. Um, I don't know how to spell their last name because my my notes, it kept auto-correcting Dunphy as a last name. Um, I don't know how you say to spell their last name to this day because I never saw it. I was a little kid. But the Dunphys would invite us over for dessert or we'd have them over there were many times they'd hop over and watch us for a minute while my mom had to run to the store or something like that. Uh, I just remember we, we built relationship with them. I also remember uh, one time they had moved away and they came back to visit and they came to see us and we're kind of like family across the street from one another and we were riding in their car and for you that are like in your 20s or younger, you don't know about these things called cigarette lighters in cars. When they're red, you should not put your finger on them. Learned that when I was a kid. That's what I remember about the Dunphys, right? Uh, then we drove through a Dairy Queen, and they got me ice cream and ice for my finger. Um, so almost worth it. But I also remember we had neighbors behind us that weren't very good neighbors. I mean, they were the kind of neighbors that our house was almost on their property line, and theirs was almost on ours. We lived in a city, and so it was kind of tight. And they had cracked the siding on the back of our house, and they said, well, it's, you know, it's basically in our yard, so basically we're not doing anything about it. Um, they complained one day that our fence was in their yard, which it, it wasn't like it was actually, a, we had about three feet, we could have gone further, but it was almost in their house, it was weird, but my dad, being gracious, moved the fence over two feet, just so we didn't have to worry about that issue, but again and again, they would complain about something. They were not good neighbors, but my dad would go ahead and do those little things to be a good neighbor to people who were not, and that has always stood out to me. Now, he would come in the house and be irritated but they never knew it. He would just do the nice thing and the right thing, and, and he would, you know, and so that has always stood out to me. But I was thinking about how there's all kinds of movies that have been made about being bad neighbors, right? There are lots of those movies, but not a lot of good neighbors. And then I had written that, and then I started thinking about every Hallmark movie there is where, you know, there's a single widow and this young guy who's about her age moves in next door and becomes this good neighbor and they end up getting married, right? Like that's every Hallmark movie. So apparently there are lots of movies made with good neighbors. Um, They're just all on the Hallmark channel. So, but I do have two questions for you and I today. And they're actually pretty simple questions. I think the implication of their answers are not quite so simple. First one is this. Are we good neighbors? Are we good neighbors? And the second question is much like it. Who are our neighbors? This is the 
This is a series we've been in, right? We've been talking about making space for people. And so we've talked about a few key areas in the last few weeks. And our, our hope has been that we will become more and more a community of faith for every generation, but recognizing that for young people, church is a new idea, a foreign concept, and we have to probably do some things to help create space for them. And so one thing we talked about week one, the most important thing we can do is focus on Jesus and make sure that he's central to what we talk about. We talked about this, that we want to empathize with young people because it's harder today to be young than it's ever been. Most of us didn't have social media growing up. It is a hot mess. It's hard being a teenager today. We talked about we want to help, help figure out how to prioritize young people and families because, because of some of the stuff I've mentioned. It's tough today to do that, and so we want to make sure we do our best to help equip them because there's a lot of wisdom among us collectively that we can pass on to one another. We talked about we want to pass along leadership. It's called keychain leadership. How do we hand off keys to the next generation? And then we talked about last week... How do we create a warm community, right? A place where it feels comfortable to be, where you want to be a part. We do our best to do that. But this week, if we do those things, then this other idea becomes something that matters as well. The question is this, are we being the best neighbors? See, too often, the church, we've been guilty of not thinking about how we impact our community the influence we actually have, the messages we send. We know what we do internally, but we're not always great with the message. Our marketing strategy externally has not always been good. And so we're asked these questions. Am I a good neighbor? And who is my neighbor? And the interesting thing is Jesus addresses this very same thing in Luke chapter 10. I think his words for us are valuable for us. And so here's what we find in Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. and When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do 
likewise. Now, many of us have heard the story of the Good Samaritan. In fact, there's organizations now that call themselves the Good Samaritan, right? Um, but we've heard this story, but do we really think about this story in maybe some different kind of ways? A couple scholars are generous to the expert in the law, and they say, well, maybe he was asking legitimate questions. I mean, the question he does ask is a pretty good one, like, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I find life that is eternal? What, what do I do for that? Others have said he's trying to trap Jesus, And so he asks this question, hoping that Jesus will be confused in his answer, or he'll give a poor answer, or something they can kind of twist and and make different. In fact, it's something where he ideally would like to declare Jesus a heretic. And so it's interesting that in this story, Jesus uses a Samaritan as a part of the story because Samaritans were considered heretics. They were considering to have a poor view of God and understanding of what it meant to follow God. But the question the expert in the law asks is a question that probably might matter to us. How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus does what Jesus so often does, which honestly is probably a lesson for you and I. We might be better answering questions with more questions than giving answers. So Jesus asks a question. He says, what is... The law. What, how do, what do you do with this? What's written in the law? And the law, we can hear, it's, it's either one of two things. It's either just meaning the first five books of what we call the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, or it is the entire Old Testament. We don't really know which one here. It doesn't really matter. But the answer the guy gives is pretty good. He says, basically, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Jesus himself uses the same phrase in in the Gospel of Matthew, we, we can assume Jesus has taught this numerous times. And so the expert does that. And Jesus doesn't ask a question here. He actually gives an answer. And so we should probably like perk up a little bit. He says, do this and you will live. Now, I don't want to go through this too quickly, so I'm going to say this. Jesus tells us the way to eternal life is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. You don't know what it looks like to have eternal life? Jesus gives us the answer here. To love God with your whole being and to love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe you and I are much like the expert in the law. and We're like, well, you know, that sounds like a good thing. Okay, it makes sense we'd have to love God. But then the obvious question is this. Who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? See, one of the things that happened over time is the nation of Israel, people in the Jewish world, had bought into the idea over time that that their neighbor was only them. Nobody else. So in other words, it couldn't possibly be with the Romans who were oppressing them. It couldn't be their neighbors. It couldn't be the Samaritans. Those people were heretics and didn't do the right thing, and they didn't know who God was, and they misconstrued the Scriptures. And it definitely couldn't be anybody from any other nation because we are God's chosen people, so those people can't be my neighbor. So therefore, my neighbor must be people who look like me, talk like me, and believe like me. In other words, my neighbor are people that are easy to love. Except, it's not what Jesus goes, yep, He says, let me tell you a story. And he tells this story, and he said, let me tell you this story about this 
traveler. He's on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, and that road was actually pretty dangerous. It's still dangerous even in the early 20th century. Um, it's the space in which you'd have to travel through. It's right, even today, it's Israel, Palestine, this, this neighbor thing is still a problem even there right here, right now. And the man was a little bit foolhardy, right? He actually made a really poor decision. It's not a road you should have ever traveled alone. So the guy has made a bad decision, and that's pretty obvious. He should have probably never traveled at night and these kind of things. And so we, this guy's a little bit reckless. He's made some poor decisions. Um, and yet what we begin to see is the story unravels. And so first, the guy's mugged by robbers, and then comes along a priest. Now, we would think a priest, that's a pretty good person to come along. They should love people. They should love God. But there's this, this passage from Numbers chapter 19, verse 11, in which if you go near and touch a dead person, right, if from the other side of the street someone looks like they're dead and you're a priest and you were to go touch that person and check and this person is likely on their way to the temple, then they would be excused. It wouldn't be able to go to the temple. They have to wait seven days and they're out. So the priest goes, well, I can't worship God if I check on this person and he's dead, so I just better not check on him. The priest goes on his way. Then comes a Levite, right? This Levites were the ones that were to be set aside to do priestly work. And so you're thinking, well, this may not be the priest or one of the priests, but this is a person from this same tribe that they should do this stuff. And the Levite comes by and probably gets a little bit closer than the priest. Um, but he probably thinks in this term, I love the one, one scholar said, maybe I'll get ambushed. So in other words, his thought process is, well, safety first. It's a dangerous road. I probably should just not, not go over there. And he doesn't. He's worried about getting mugged. And then the Samaritan comes along. Samaritans were known as heretics. They were known as breakers of ceremonial law. They were known as these people who were just kind of pushed to the side in the margin. Jews had nothing to do with them. They would go around Samaria to not go through it. I mean, they just wanted to ignore these people. And this Samaritan who knew Jews didn't like him stops. So we do learn a few things about him. We learn this. Um, he was known well enough that when he went and paid for this guy at the inn, his credit was good. Right? He offered, he says, listen, here's basically a denarius, a day's wages. So he gave two days' wages. So two days of his paycheck he gave for the care of this man. He was prepared, right? He had stuff where he could bind up wounds and help. He lived prepared to help others. See, the Samaritan did something that cost him to be a good neighbor. I mean, it literally cost him. And yet, the two people who should have been the religious people, who should have been the God followers, who should have modeled what God's love looked like, they passed on the other side and didn't stop. Jesus tells the story, then he asks the expert in the law a simple question. Who was a neighbor to the man who was robbed? Now, the expert in the law is not an idiot. He's not dumb. So he knows the right answer to this question. And so he doesn't say the Samaritan, because he's not going to give it that much, but he says, the one who showed him mercy. And what Jesus is trying to get across is a simple idea. He's wanting to expand the idea of who our neighbor is. What he's saying is this, God is not just the God of Israel, but God is the God of grace 
for the whole world. God is the God of grace for the whole world. The implications of this are pretty dramatic, if you didn't think about it for a second. So can you imagine this, that the hated Samaritan, the person you hated, that you now have to see as your neighbor, and if you can't see them as your neighbor, then you will be the one left for dead on the side of the road. Or, if I said it in another way, can you see the terrorist, the Democrat, the Republican, the immigrant, person who doesn't look like you, talk like you, vote like you? Can you see the person who is pro-mask or anti-mask? Can you see the person that is pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine? Can you see them as your neighbor or not? Because if you can't, then you don't know Jesus. And then he goes on to say, followers of Jesus live this way. He says, go and do likewise. I mean, gosh, honestly, this is kind of scary to us. It takes so much of what we have preconceived notion about, and it reorients our mind and our eyes to see the world with new lenses, to see it with dramatically new vision. Right, this week I wear contacts, and so this week I, um, I don't know what I did, I think I rubbed my eye, and I pushed my contact up like right in here. And it took me about 15 minutes to get it down. And it, I thought it was above my eye. It was not on my eye. I kept rubbing my eye, but that actually hurts, by the way, if you don't have a contact over your eye. And it took me about 15 minutes, and my eye's all red, and it's kind of puffy at this point, and I finally got the contact down. But every time I was trying to get the contact move, I was in a bathroom looking in a mirror, and, and I would close one eye and close the other to see if I'd got it back yet. Because with my one contact, I could still see pretty good. But when I would close my left eye and look out my right eye, everything was fuzzy because the contact was still up there. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to see. If we're not careful, we'll try to see the world without the corrective lenses that he offers us and we'll not understand why everything is a little bit fuzzy or we don't see the world the way we were actually meant to see it. So I love this quote from N.T. Wright. He says this, What is at stake then and now is the question of whether we will use the God-given revelation of love and grace as a way of boasting our own sense of isolated security and purity, or whether we will see it as a call and challenge to extend that love and grace to the whole world. So what are we to do? Well, the story of the Good Samaritan, honestly, uh, is the Good Samaritan being a good neighbor and putting that into practice, and his practices are practical. So what's a practical thing we can do? Well, let's begin to see the good in the world around us. Too many of us see the world with lenses in which we see no good, and we don't see God at work. We, everything is negative. Everything's critical. If you spend too much time watching any cable news television, you'll see that, right? Because if it's bad, it sells. And you miss the goodness of what God's doing in the, work, in the world. You're, you're blind to it because you're so wrapped up in things that are broken that you miss the goodness of God in the midst of the world all around us. It's why we've used this phrase here for a few years now, and it's why we continue to use the phrase. We say this, we think God is for you, or we use the phrase, for the lakeshore, right? So let's think about our own community. What does it look like to recognize God is for it? So the phrase we have used and will continue to use is God is for you, 
He is for your future. He is for your family. And he is for this community. Why? Because for God so loved the world, the whole world, he gave his son so we can have eternal life. He goes on to say, not to condemn the world, but to redeem the world. Huh. Redeem, not destroy. How often do we see the good in the world around us? Are we blinded by having the wrong corrective lenses? And so what is our church trying to do to be practical? Uh, one last year, just a couple of things that jumped out in my mind as I was thinking about this. One um, a pretty cool thing, just a couple of weeks ago, our fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, our Impact 231, they went and organized a foster closet, and they've tried to partner and do some pretty cool stuff in that way. That's one of my favorite groups of our church because they are doing practical things of serving. Now, it's been tougher for them because of COVID. It's closed some doors of places they used to go, and they are not able to go, but trying to figure out ways for them to do good practices in our community. Our community garden has given away thousands of pounds of food this last year. I don't know how many thousands of families it impacted. Um, there's a whole, like, we've got the sheet somewhere to show you all the stuff. It's a lot. Um, I, I learned what, I'm sure, like, kohlrabi. Am I saying that right? right? Something like that. I don't know what it is. I'm still not going to eat it. Um, but there's all kinds of great stuff they give away in the garden. I mean, I understand other stuff like peppers and onions. I ate a few of the cucumbers. They're good, right? Like, there's some cool things they do with the garden. But our church is recognizing with COVID, there were some interesting limitations to what we could and couldn't do this last year. We didn't love that, but it was the reality. And so we asked the question, and you've all participated in this, we asked the question as a church, how do we love our neighbors in these days when we can't necessarily be physically present with our neighbors? And so we said, well, you know, what's, what's the number one cause of bankruptcy in America? If you didn't know this, it's medical debt. The number one cause of bankruptcy in America is not like poor work habits, it's not going to work, it's, not, it's medical debt. It is like a weight around people's shoulders that weighs them down. And so we found out about an organization called RIP Medical Debt that literally buys medical debt that, that someone will be willing to sell it. So it's the debt that once it's gone to collections, right? once you can't pay your bill and it's gone to collections because the numbers have gotten too big, they will go in and buy it for pennies on the dollar, because debt collectors will just take it because right, it's still a win for them. Uh, not all, because we couldn't buy up everything we wanted to buy up. But here's what I wanted you to know. Um, we raised over $11,000 for RIP medical debt. And, and here's what's cool about that. That means we eliminated over $1 million of debt. So it, it's for, over 2,000 families were impacted by what we did. In fact, we, we're waiting on final numbers because right now... Um, Muskegon debt, we couldn't buy, and now we're buying again. And so it's a long story short. I don't have that specific number, but I do have a picture I'll show you. I don't know if you'll be able to see it. Oh, well, well, we'll have this posted soon. Um, but as of right now, we've impacted, we've eliminated $1.1 million in debt. And you can see the average abolished on the right side there. Uh, so for, one, for two families, we were able to eliminate $12,000 in debt for just two families among the many who were represented. Um, and someone goes, well, do we get to talk to them? This is where like those, those, those darn health HIPAA laws make that impossible. <laughs> but every person who had their debt paid by us received a note that said, hey, this is from Connection Point Church, and we want you to know that God is for you and for your family, and we hope this helps, and it'll link to our website. Now, I haven't heard anything back from anyone yet. I'm hoping we will. They, they're trying to work on a system. We might hear something, but but they at least know that they've been loved and prayed for and cared for, and you were a part of that. We think that's a way we can be a good neighbor, literally to our neighbors. 
In fact, we think that we want to be good neighbors to those beyond because we think neighbors aren't just those who live next door us, next door to us, or in our same state, or even in the same country. Um, although we're going to Puerto Rico, which is a province, it's like the 51st state, but we're going to Puerto Rico next summer on a mission trip, and there's information in the Welcome Center if you want to be a part of that because we think we should be good neighbors. And so here's what we're going to do we're going and we're helping and partnering with churches who are less well-off than we are, and we're helping to establish opportunities for them to serve in their own communities, to help upgrade facilities, to help do things that they don't have the ability to do. And we're not doing it because, hey, we're better than you. We're doing it because they're us, and we're in this together. And we think the kingdom of God is not defined by any singular location. So what does this tell us, and why is this important? Our neighbors are not our enemies. Our neighbors are our opportunities to put love into practice. I'm going to say that again because that's pretty good. Our neighbors are not our enemies. Our neighbors are our opportunities to put love into practice. And maybe you're asking this question that some of you are asking right now. This series has predominantly been about how do we connect with younger generations? Here's how. We help them recognize the church doesn't just speak to this idea of eternal life, but it speaks to tangible ways to be at work in the world here and now. And that Jesus calls us to impact the world in radical, loving ways. We believe the message of Jesus won't just change our minds and our hearts and our lives and our eternal life, but we believe the message of Jesus can change the entire world. And for many people, They have no desire to hear about the message of Jesus until they know that they're loved. And love often is tangible. It's not just heartfelt. It is practical. And so we're challenging you and I that we become better neighbors. We'd be good neighbors. What do good neighbors do? Well, they have conversations that are less about the conclusions and more about listening to others. Good neighbors listen and empathize with other people. Good neighbors look for tangible ways to help someone. Good neighbors do these kinds of things. So how are you and I doing as being good neighbors? And it may seem small, and that's okay, but our small acts add up to big acts that ultimately can transform the world around us. I love these words from Andy Crouch. He says this, The only way to change culture is to create more of it. Something that will persuade our neighbors to set aside some existing set of cultural goods for our new proposal. What's that new proposal? We hope they'll embrace that the kingdom of God has come. And they'll come to know who Jesus is. And coming back to the question, the expert in the law asks Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? What Jesus tells us in the book of John, he says this, he says, follow me. I'm the way and the truth and the life. So what do we do? Let's create more culture. Let's make space for people. Let's love more. Let's be good neighbors. When asked by Jesus, who is a neighbor, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. 
Let's go and do likewise. Good neighbors extend mercy. And I'll remind you of one thing in this story. The traveler made poor decisions, and the Samaritan extended mercy irregardless of that. It didn't impact whether he extended mercy or not. So you and I are called to be good neighbors regardless of the situation that brought the other person to that space. So may you and I be people who love well, who listen well, who love others well. May we be the kind of people who extend mercy to those who don't even deserve it. We pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together for the way you invite us to be near, for the way you come and you say to us that my mercy is extended for you. As we think about this story, we think about how your son calls us to love people that seem to be unlovable. That we might embrace others in ways that are life-giving. And so, Father, we do desperately want to be the kind of people who really are good neighbors. May we be known for what we're, what we're for and not what we're against. May we be committed to reconciliation in our communities. May we be committed to redemption. May we be committed to wholeness and love and mercy. May we recognize the way that we find eternal life is that we love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then we would love our neighbor as ourself. And we'd recognize that our neighbor is everyone. Every person we see, every person we encounter, every person we might know of, that every person on the face of this earth is created in the divine image of God. And they are all someone Christ died to save. So may we embrace that as true in our own lives. May that be what drives us. And may we come to know the grace of God that says to you and I, we can know true love and true life and true hope. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.